Well, it's time to think about revival again. Thank you. <laughs> I was hoping there'd be some ex- sort of some reaction, thinking, "Great, here we are," because that's brilliant. Over the last few weeks, we've heard various speakers talking about various things about revival, and this is sort of what we've been thinking about. Two weeks ago, we said, today we're going to think about shock and surprise. And for a lot of us, we might sort of think, well, yeah, what's that about then? We're going to think about it today. We're going to think, what does shock mean? What does surprise mean? Because maybe if you've been here the last two Sundays, some of the themes that we're here today, we'll hear today, we'll notice, we'll say, ah, that's what someone said last week, or that's what someone said two weeks ago. That's intentional, because what we're trying to do is make sure you remember that it's not just one-off things that we're sort of thinking about, but it's a regular theme that we're sort of trying to understand and get to grips with. So if I say the word shock and surprise you'd definitely be thinking, yes, I see shock and surprise on the news regularly. It might be that I see terrorists or war or politics even. Politics has been shocking recently, hasn't it? In this country and in other countries as well. Or you might sort of think economics or refugees, and there's maybe a long list, a list that's longer than that's on the screen at the moment. We could be saying, yeah, I'm used to that. But we just get this, oh, not again feeling, oh. You just get used to shock and surprise. But hopefully, what we're going to be seeing today is how God surprises and shocks us, the church, but not in a negative way. Because sometimes the shocks that you might see on the news are just, oh no, how did that happen? But God is a shocker where he says, oh yeah, would you believe it? God's just done that in my life. God doesn't always do the things that we expect. And the good thing is, it's because he's God, and we're not. And so that's really good. But why does he shock and surprise us? Maybe, perhaps the church is a bit sleepy, or apathetic, or slow to understand, or maybe we might be interested in me, my and I, a bit more than we should be. So what we're going to do, we're going to be thinking about some of these examples that we looked at two weeks ago, but perhaps in a little bit more detail. This first one, Wales in 1735. There's this chap, Howell Harris, and others like Daniel Rowland and others as well, but we're just going to think a lot about Howell today. Now, in the early 18th century, Wales wasn't such a good place to live because it had declined politically And it had declined spiritually as well. There was a lot of black magic around and occultism. And uh, there was lots of drunkenness and fighting and and gambling and things that you wouldn't have been wanting to go and see yourself. When Howell was 17, his father died. And his biographer says that it was then that he broke out into the devil's service. He broke out into the devil's service. And he became very interested... I've got a list. Uh, gambling at dice, drinking, lovemaking, and improving his personal appearance. 
So some things never change, do they? Like, this is like 300 years ago that he was just interested in sex and he wanted to make himself look good and sort of gambling and all this. Isn't that quite similar to now? It certainly is, isn't it? But the thing was, after four years, after his father had died and had been into all this stuff, he went to church and heard a sermon and suddenly he thought, I've got to do better than that. And he tried by his own power to do a change. But, of course, that's a bit, it's not going to happen, is it, really? You can sort of see sometimes, yes, Lord, you've said I want to ch- you need me to change. I'm going to try and change. It didn't happen. He tried his best, but a few days after that, he had a real deep conviction of sin. And the Holy Spirit changed him. And he was a changed person. He was a great prayer. And he was a great evangelist. And his preaching was brilliant, some people might say, because he'd often preach for two hours, and sometimes he preached for up to six hours. So have you brought your lunch with you? No, okay, so I'm not going to go as long as six hours today. That's okay. But he was like that. But the thing was, there was all these people that were gambling, into sex, into nastiness. And so what did he do? He went over and spoke to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jean is like this. But he went over to people like Jean and would say, do you know the Lord? The Lord's done this in my life. The Lord's done this. And he'd go and have a chat with them. And then sometimes he'd preach to hundreds of people or thousands of people about God. Some of the most notorious people in Wales at the time were converted. We're going to hear about that again in a little while, about another place. And hearts were broken. So that when he was preaching, you can imagine that people weren't just sitting, listening to the sermon, just smiling and giving the preacher eye contact sometimes. But they're saying, no! Lord, have mercy, I need God in my life, it needs to change me. While he was still preaching, they came under such conviction of sin that they couldn't help themselves, they couldn't just sit or stand. They had to cry out to God for mercy. Howell Harris and uh, George Whitfield, they had a lot of correspondence together. And for a while, they were both together in Wales. One of them uh, preaching in Welsh, one was preaching English. And uh, they saw a lot of God doing things through them. The Reverend Song, when he was here last week, he mentioned one scripture. Well, he mentioned several, but there was one scripture especially that caught my attention. And I've put it from the Amplified Bible. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same, yesterday and today and forever. If the Jesus of now is the same as 1735 when we're looking at Howard Harris and after when he was preaching to people and thousands of people got saved could it happen today? We know society today isn't very good and even people in leadership in the country encourage this not very goodness in the world. Society doesn't seem to blush at what they do. But the biggest problem is the church doesn't weep about what the society is doing. We've just got used to it, largely. So instead of us saying, Lord, come and have mercy on us, 
England, United Kingdom, Europe, the world, we just sort of stay in our little groups and worship him, have a nice time. But God doesn't change the world, perhaps, because we're not asking him to. Britain in the 1730s was a terrible place. There was lots of pub signs that said, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, straw to lie on. Lots of signs like that outside pubs. Pornography was really big. Even pornographic literature, it was a lot in the 1730s. Sport was brutal. There's no Queensbury rules or whatever it's called. It was fight to the death. Bull baiting, cock fighting, dogs doing this, that and the other. It was a terrible place. The church was asleep. The church said nothing about it. But in the summer of 1738, John Wesley, he went to Germany. And around about that time, things changed in his life. But we're going to think about this German count who he met in a few minutes. You might know his name. I'll ask you what it is in a few minutes. You might sort of think, oh, I'm going to try and remember then. J.C. Ryle wrote, Whitfield and Wesley did not wait for sinners to come to them. They pursued them everywhere. Like men storming a beach, no sinner was safe anywhere. Whitfield especially went on to where large numbers of people would gather. And on several occasions, they were stoned. Just like uh, Harris had been stoned. And you know, when they're stoned, there's blood, there's gore. And they nearly died several times, Whitfield and Wesley, because of them preaching in the open air and crowds were opposing what they were saying. No, we don't want any of that nice stuff and God being all love and God wanted to change us. We want to stay drunk. We want to stay gambling. We want to stay as we are. People responded really strongly. They didn't want it to happen. But Jesus Christ is eternally changeless. Always the same yesterday and today and forever. Can anyone remember the name of the German count that Wesley met? It's a name you're going to remember today. His name was Count Zinzendorf. Yeah, Zinzendorf. You might have heard of him. And this is him. And he was a nobleman, as you can see as a count, and he lived on the border of Germany and Poland and the Czech Republic. So that was where he'd live nowadays. And what was happening uh, was there was this group of people that were being sort of told, the Moravian church, that were being told, you can't be staying here in Czech Republic, as we'd call it now. You've got to move on. We don't want you to, to be here. So, because the, this Count Zinzendorf was a big landowner, he let them come to Herhut. And uh, he let these Moravians just sort of start a church there and just start a village, almost, is what it was. And so they started sort of worshipping together and uh, this group of people, this Moravian church, they weren't very friendly. Lots of arguments, lots of bickering. You wouldn't think revival would start there. But remember, this is all about shock and surprise. God shocked and surprised them because revival came. You might have heard 
that the Moravian community of Herhuts in Saxony in 1727 commenced a round-the-clock prayer watch that continued non-stop for over 100 years. We think we're great sometimes, don't we? Well, sometimes. We think, oh yeah, we've prayed till midnight. We started at 8 o'clock. We've had four hours of prayer. Oh God, did you see us praying then? How good we were. We don't feel like that at the time, do we? Because we're into prayer. But 100 years, non-stop of prayer. How did that change the world? A lot. Here's another thing. By 1791... 65 years after the commencement of that prayer vigil, the small Moravian community had sent 300 missionaries to the ends of the earth. So they weren't just praying and just sat in a room or in an open air and saying, Lord, will you bless that town over there? Lord, will you change us? Lord, will you do something in that country? God helped them to put their spiritual shoes on and spiritually to walk, to go and to see lives changed. And remember, this is like the 18th century and the 19th century. How difficult, it, how difficult it would it be to go, I've got some, a list of countries that they went to, to places like the West Indies, to Greenland, to Turkey, to Lapland, it wasn't the easiest thing to travel in those days. Most people in those days, like the 18th century, would just stay in their village. And that would be it. I've, I've traced my ancestors. I'm ever so interested in that. And for, you'd say, hundreds of years, you've, your, my ancestors just stayed in the same place as agricultural labourers. They weren't having any of it, these Moravians. And lots of people, 300 we sort of said, went all over the world because they weren't just prayers, but they felt that God had said, go. You might have heard of their motto. It was, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. And yes, you can just sort of say, if you're going to take that seriously, you can't just be sat down and not doing anything. You've got to do something. God's got to explode out of you in a way. And that's what happened. An interesting fact was, um, you might remember that when sort of the Holy Spirit came in the Hebrides last century, that it was some older ladies in their 80s, some sisters that were praying and fasting and saying, Lord, will you do something about it? But Zinzendorf was 27 when this started, and most of the average age of the people that were going were in their early 30s. Which is brilliant, because it just goes to show that in a way, our age doesn't stop us from doing things of God or doesn't, doesn't make us do things of God. It's irrelevant. It's our heart attitude saying, Lord, yes, you have conquered. I'm going to follow you. Let's travel a little bit uh, later in time. So we're not going from the 18th centuries. Uh, we're into the 19th century. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same yesterday and today and forever. Remember that. That slide's going to come up a few times. If you were here two weeks ago, you'd have seen this slide, this chap called Brownlow North, and he was a, a great nephew of one of the politicians of the time. He didn't have a good lifestyle. He was a bit of a, a, a chap who was more interested in his own sort of uh, pleasures than anything else. God changed him. 
he was really well known in the 19th century. God changed him, and then he started preaching like John the Baptist. Sort of, how on brimstone and black is black, white is white. If you're going to carry on your life like this, that's no good. You've got to change. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is your saviour. I think of people like him, Bramlow North, alive today. Not perhaps terrible people, but people in the public eye. People like J.K. Rowling, Russell Brand, Gary Lineker, Theresa May, Adele, David Attenborough. People that don't know God at the moment. What would happen if they became Christians today? And they became really open to what God was saying. And they became like John the Baptist, not afraid to say the things that God put in their minds to say. It would be all over the papers, wouldn't it? People would get to know about it. Is that something we could pray for? That people that are in the public eye could get to know God? People like Brownlow North, who got to know God, and then things changed radically through him and through many other people. It's happened in the past. I'm just going to read a little bit from this book, Great Revivals. And it's telling us about what was happening in 1859 in Wales. There was a move amongst students. A work with soldiers, quarrymen of the roughest kind were brought to Christ. Seamen were reached. Notorious characters of the worst kind were transformed. And at the other end of the scale, children began to pray in a most beautiful and unaffected way. Crime dropped significantly. In 1860, the criminal cases before the Welsh courts decreased from 1,809 to 1,228. At the Menai Bridge, a local policeman was reproved by the chief constable for attending prayer meetings. He excused himself by explaining that the roads were quiet and the public houses were empty and that the chapels were the only places of excitement. The chief constable heard that the offending constable had not only attended, but had actually prayed in the meeting. Thereupon, a red-letter notice was sent to all constables instructing them not to pray in prayer meetings. The order was disregarded. Altogether, it is reliably estimated that 100,000 people were added to the churches in Wales at a time when the total population was about 1 million. And in the United Kingdom as a whole, at least a million people became Christians around about that time, in 1859. Two years later, in the census, there were 20 million people living in the country. So out of the 20 million, about a million were born-again Christians. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same, yesterday and today and forever. If God did that those years ago, Can he do it today? Let's briefly think about Wales again, 1904. So, Evan Roberts, there were loads of other preachers. If you do some research yourself, you'll see there's easily a dozen people that were going around Wales and God was using them in in tremendous ways. And around about 100,000 people were used by, became Christians at that time. Again, a little bit from this book. 
The whole of Wales was affected. Hardened unbelievers were gloriously converted. Drunkards, thieves, gamblers were transformed. Confessions of all sins were heard on every side. Old debts were paid. Miners prayed together before commencing their shifts in the coal mines. Pit ponies, unused to the new kindness and clean language, without usual kicks and curses, almost stopped work until they got adjusted. Courts had few cases to try. Whole football and rugby teams got converted and fixtures were abandoned. The young men were more concerned with praying than playing. Dance halls were deserted, the pubs were empty and not a few went out of business. But the prayer meetings were crowded. The good news from Wales spread. And again, if you were here two weeks ago, you'll know that it spread to Neneaton. In 1905, there was a great revival in Neneaton. Not just in one church, not just in the church, but in this place, in Bongate. Because there was a theatre there called the Prince of Wales Theatre, and it later became the Hippodrome, and then it was knocked down in the 1960s. But that's the place where it was. So if you sort of go by where Marcus Jones is, up this road, or coming down this road, and then you look there, that's where the theatre was. And this white building is still there, from where it was. That was still there like 100 years ago. So that bit there was a scene of revival, and so were many churches at the time. And the chap that God used was the Reverend uh, Roderick Kedward. And he was really used by God in an amazing way. I've been searching the newspapers in the Neaton Library. And so I want to read what the Neaton Observer said on page 5 on the 3rd of March 1905. Remember, this is a secular newspaper. The things they say about God and following God is amazing. This is a secular newspaper, and you can go and have a look yourself, but it'll be on our website soon anyway. In last week's issue of the Christian Herald appears the following in reference to the revival at Nuneaton. The recent revival at Nuneaton, during which over 1,000 converts were made, did you hear that? Over 1,000 converts were made in Nuneaton in 1905. Okay, I'm going back to reading now. Uh, was the result of a young minister's obedience to God's spirit. He says, For some time past, I have felt that God was near to us, and that if we were faithful to him, he would move this town towards the highest. Then came a clearer vision. God spoke, and I was moved and swayed at his message. Go and take the Nuneaton Theatre, that place there on Bongate. Take the theatre. How? When? In the wind and rain I battled with myself, but was carried almost against my will to the office, where I asked for terms. With the estimate in my pocket, I went and spoke to two men, and the thing, they agreed. We signed the agreement, and the thing was done. That was our first act of faith. And I felt confident that God would not fail us. The next duty put upon me was not so easy. Go and visit every public house in the town and speak to the men. That's God speaking to him. I wavered. I prayed. I conquered. And the same night found me talking to the men in the pubs. And since that time, to them at Christ's feet. The next step, get some cards printed. Full. To hang outside the church. 
Some people smiled, but we had the cards and their use was not long postponed, for our church has been thronged night after night, and some hundreds have been brought to God. About 160 more came last Sunday. Can you imagine us putting a house full? It's not gone there yet. House full. Can you imagine us putting a house full sign outside saying, sorry, we've got people outside saying, sorry, you can't come in here anymore. Why don't you go and pray in a car park? Why don't you go and pray on the green grass over there? It happened. And it weren't just churches, but for several uh, Sundays in early 1905, this... uh, Prince of Wales Theatre, which seats at least 1,500, was full. And I've read reports in the newspapers about how the doors were opened and after about 20 minutes, and people had been waiting outside for several hours patiently because they wanted to get inside, they didn't want to just sort of, it didn't matter, it didn't not matter to them, they were sure they had to be there. And so they got there an hour so early, just so they could hear God speak to them and be in the presence of God in a theatre in the Neaton in 1905. So they were full. And so what happened was 300 of them or so that couldn't get into the theatre then had to go to the URC church, they called it the Congregational Church. And so they'd sort of go through town and go to the church there. And then they'd have their meeting and people were saved there as well. So the amazing thing is God has touched Nuneaton already. And what we want to say is, Lord, touch us again. Because Jesus Christ is eternally changeless. Always the same, yesterday and today and forever. If you're going to read about revivals, and I'd really encourage you to, you'd read that the revivals, many revivals in Africa, in North America, South America, Asia, mainland Europe, read all about it, just put some terms in Google or whatever, and you'll find that God's been at work in surprising and shocking ways around the world. I was shocked yesterday, because I was thinking about what to say today, and I found out that according to Operation World, which knows that stuff, the gospelcoalition.org, you can look it up at home if you want to, they said that the fastest growing evangelical church in the world last year was, tell me, where do you think it was? China? Could have been. Sounds like a good one, doesn't it? China, amazing. Anyone else want to give us a, a, a country where they think the church has been growing the fastest last year? Africa, yeah, so lots of good things happening in Africa. Iran. Iran has seen thousands of people get to know God. There's been more Christians, more people have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the last 13 centuries. We know what's happening in Iran. Persecution. Terrible things. In 1979, when Ayatollah Khomeini became the chap in charge there, there was about 500 Christians from a Muslim background, people think. Today there's about a million. And the second fastest growing church in the world after Iran is Afghanistan, according to Operation World. So it's not just some website saying, oh yeah, I'll just put that on, that'll make people happy. This is people that have really looked into it and this is what they're suggesting. That's amazing. God is at work around the world. 
shocking and surprising people. We want God to come and do something around where we are, to do something new. We're going to get rid of all these. Miss that bit out. Ah, this is going to be good. A.W. Tozer, he said this, There is grief in my spirit when I go into the average church, for we have become a generation rapidly losing all sense of divine sacredness in our worship. Many whom we have raised in our churches no longer think in terms of reverence, which seems to indicate they doubt that God's presence is there. Much of the blame must be placed on the growing acceptance of a worldly secularism that seems much more appealing in our church circles than any hungering or thirsting for the spiritual life that pleases God. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One of my favourite prophets in the Old Testament is Habakkuk. I really like reading about what he read, uh, what he wrote and what he said, and I read that book quite a lot. And you might know that he was a prophet to Judah about the time of King Josiah or King Jehoiakim. So that's around 640 to 600 BC. And Jeremiah was probably around at the same time. He wrote this. Look around at the godless nations. Look long and hard. Brace yourself for a shock. Something's about to take place and you're going to find it hard to believe. I'm about to raise up Babylonians to punish you. Babylonians, fierce and ferocious, world-conquering Babylon, grabbing up nations right and left, a dreadful and terrible people, making up its own rules as it goes. Could you believe it if you were there at the time? That you're trying to follow God? And yet suddenly he's saying that these people, these terrorists, you could almost say at the time, were going to do something and God was going to use them. If we just sort of think back in sort of world history, sort of before uh, the Babylonians became the world superpower, it was Assyria. And so Assyria was the big superpower at the time. But Babylon was grown stronger, and in 612 BC, they had a battle, and then Assyria was definitely on the wane. And then in um, 609 BC, at the Battle of Carchemish in Syria, the Babylonians, they defeated Egypt. But we're thinking about this, they came and defeated and destroyed Jerusalem in around 587 BC. It happened. God used the Babylonians. God surprised and shocked what was his people. Some of their versions say this, Look at the nations and observe, be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Here's another one. Look among the nations, see, be astonished, wonder, for I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same, yesterday and today and forever. Can God still shock us? Can God still surprise us? Does, need, does God need to surprise us? Does God need to shock us? One person we didn't mention two weeks ago, because we were thinking about Britain, was Jonathan Edwards. And he was an American. And that's him there. 
and he lived 1703 to 1758. And a lot of his sermons are still about. You can read them on Google Books. I was doing it the other day. I'm just going to read all of this because, again, this is something that's really sort of, wow, God. This chap in the 18th century from America was saying this then. How much more do we need to say it now? There may be new and extraordinary works of God. He has previously acted in an obviously unusual manner. He has brought to pass new things, strange works, and has worked in such a way as to surprise men and angels. And as God has done thus in times past, so we have no reason to think but that he will do so still. The prophecies of Scripture give us reason to think that God has things to accomplish that have never yet been seen. The Holy Spirit is sovereign in his operation. We know that he uses a great variety. We cannot tell how great a variety he may use within the boundary of the rules that he himself has fixed. We ought not to limit God where he has not limited himself. Some preachers would say, let's say that everyone, I'm not that sort of person. But I'll put it in big, because that is what I sort of really strongly feel. How can we limit God if he doesn't limit himself? That's a real challenge to me in my prayers and in my actions. That God is so boundless and limitless. How can my prayers be so small? Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same, yesterday and today and forever. So God has shocked and surprised millions of people around the world and across the centuries. Jesus Christ is eternally changeless, always the same, yesterday and today and forever. So I wonder, can we say to God, God, will you shock and surprise us all all here today? individually and collectively. God, will you come and use us where we are in this coming few days so that next week when we meet together we can say, you'll never guess what. God did this. God did that. And the emphasis, of course, is on God. It's not, oh, do you know, I was great. I always did this. Not at all. God was brilliant. God was sovereign. God was loving. He came into a situation where I thought there was no clear answer. He shocked and surprised me. He came into uh, my friend's life, and I've been praying for years for this particular friend. This week they became a Christian. He shocked and surprised me. My neighbour's been terrible. I don't get on with my neighbour. But this week, they brought a cake round. And they said, I'm sorry, I've not been the best of neighbours. God can surprise us. God can shock us. Because Jesus Christ is eternally changeless. Always the same, yesterday and today and forever. 
So we want God to change our society. We want society to start blushing at what it does. We want, as the church, to start saying, Lord, that's terrible, and weep, and spend time doing something about it, praying and seeking God. So we're going to pray just now, and then we're going to worship and just think about some of these themes again, about how God is alive, and God does do shocking and surprising things. He also doesn't, sometimes, but God can, and God does. And why not in us this week? So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples through the centuries that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And Lord, as we've heard briefly, different sort of things that have happened across the world, Lord, will you change us, help us and to know you more, to see you in your fullness, Lord, or even just a bit of your fullness, so we can really see, Lord, that you are amazing and that you can change this world for good. Lord, we want to be part of that change. We don't want to sit on the sidelines. We want to be part of what you're doing in the world, what you're doing in our streets, what you're doing in our own houses, Lord. So come and be with us, Lord. And we thank you for your presence with us. Amen.